Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is God's word. Amen. Thanks, Jenny. So good morning. I didn't introduce myself before. Let me do that now. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's so good to see you. We continue in a series this morning in this section of the Psalms, Psalm 120 through 134. It's called Psalms of Ascent. They were the songs that the Jewish pilgrims would sing as they were going up to the city of Jerusalem at the feast. Uh, For us, it is a manual in how to live a life lived toward God, how to live toward God in everything. And so we've been looking at different themes that these songs bring out every week. And the theme for this week, as you see in the sermon title I've given you, is the happy life. And so here's the question. What makes for a happy life? What makes for a happy life? That's what this psalm is about. Notice the word blessed or bless. It occurs four times in just the span of a few verses. And the word refers to a full life, a good life. Some, it really is the word happy. And so the question is, what makes for a happy life? It's an important question to ask. Uh, as James K. Smith has said, It's not a question of whether you're pursuing the good life, but which. And I find that pretty profound. He says, we all imagine some version of the kingdom come and have set out, these are his words, on on an Arthurian quest for the Holy Grail, which he describes as that hoped for, longed for, dreamed of picture of the good life. And whatever it is, whatever it is in your imagination that you think of when I ask the question, that's the reason that you get up in the morning. And so what version of the good life has captured your imagination? That's the question we have to answer. Uh, It used to be that there was a generally culturally approved and agreed upon conception of happiness uh, that rivaled the one offered by God in his word. And it had to do with affluence and personal freedom. Those were the categories that Francis Schaeffer used to describe kind of this alternate view of the kingdom come to the one the Bible presented. But it's, it really, and you had to choose. There was a choice you had to make in being a follower of Jesus about which end you were going to pursue. But it's even harder now because no longer is that the case. Now there is no shared cultural vision of what makes for a good life. What matters most, the highest good, is to be fully yourself. In other words, this is, this is really the quest that most people in our culture are on, to go on the adventure of looking inward, to discover your true self, and then spend your life and spend your money and spend your time actualizing it and expressing yourself. Happiness is no longer a matter of conforming your life to external reality, but instead conforming, figuring out how to, through technique and power, how to conform your surroundings to whatever feels right on the inside. And it's the school of thought that's given the name existentialism. And I know it's a big word, and I don't mean to be too 
intellectual, but it's not just, you know, a word. It's the air we breathe, and you need to know. You need to know that that's the culture. It's the waters we swim in, to use whatever metaphor we can find, right? It is everywhere around us, and it's completely antithetical to what the Bible says makes for a happy life. Psalm 128 is an alternate picture of where happiness can be found. It's very different from the one that dominates our cultural imagination. And so what a great, what a great opportunity for us to look a little closer at these verses this morning. And as we do, here's what we're going to see. Three things, as usual. We're going to see where a happy life starts, because the psalm does show us that, where a happy life starts. Secondly, what a happy life looks like. It gives us some really great categories to show us where real a real sense of meaning and fulfillment, enjoyment, and happiness can come from. And then thirdly, how it is that this happy life can come, how you can get it, how it can come into your life. So where it starts and what it is, what it looks like, and how it comes as we just make our way through these verses. So let's start. First, let's start with the idea of where a happy life begins. Where does it start? And when you look at verse 1, you see it's pointed out for us there. Blessed, that word is happy, happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And then the same idea is repeated down in verse 4. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And so, according to this psalm, the fear of the Lord is not only the beginning of wisdom, it is also the beginning of happiness. So what is the fear of the Lord? I mean, that's the next question we have to answer then, isn't it? And and the good news is, is it's a major theme in the Bible, so we have a lot we could say about that here, but we need to make this distinction as we begin to talk about this, as the scriptures do, between what we could describe as the wrong kind of fear and the right kind of fear of the Lord. I gave you a quote there in your outline, if you notice, from Stephen Uly, who writes this. He says, and here's how you know the difference. He says, ungodly fear flows from God wrongly perceived, whereas godly fear flows from God rightly perceived. Ungodly fear compels you to run from God, whereas godly fear compels you to run to him. So in the Exodus passage that we read a little while ago, Moses says something that at first, honestly, is really confusing. Uh, if If you caught it, he says this. He basically comes to the people and he says, hey, do not fear so that you can fear. He kind of just... Okay, what is, exactly does that mean? Do not fear so that you might fear the Lord, he says. In other words, do not fear God in the wrong way so that you can learn to fear him in the right way. That's what Moses is trying to say there. The people, remember, are trembling at the base of the mountain. It says they stood afar off. Uh, they asked Moses to go into God's presence for them. They, they didn't want anything to do with all of that stuff that was going on there. And, and Moses said that's the wrong kind of fear. That is the existential dread that is there when a person is confronted with the reality of God, but without knowing him personally. Let me say that again. There's an existential dread that you can be confronted with when you're confronted with the reality of God, but without knowing him personally. And the accounts in the Bible of people coming face to face with God describe it as a terrifying experience because God is holy. 
He is there in that passage. He's thunder and he's lightning and he's dark clouds, this foreboding imagery of the presence of God. He is holy and we are sinful and we're unable, excuse me, we are able to remain somewhat not aware of these truths. We're, we're able to keep them in kind of the subconscious, subterranean parts of our lives. They stay buried beneath the surface of our day-to-day life, like, like the tectonic plates. That's the, that's the imagery I would use, like those tectonic plates underneath the earth's crust. But then, if there's any experience where uh, the two things are, are caused to crash into one another, where there's, a, where there's a pushing together of the reality of God's holiness and my sinfulness, if I'm ever confronted by those two things in any real way, of course, just like when the tectonic plates crash in, it causes an earthquake When it happens to you, there'll be fear and trembling that will result. But it's the wrong kind of fear. It's the fear that the people had there in Exodus 20. It's a generic fear that causes people to be fearful of everything except the one thing they should be afraid of, which is God himself. And so, a quick theology lesson for us. If you only know God as existential reality, but you don't know him personally, you'll be shaking all the time. You'll just go through your life just shaking, fear and trembling over everything. Every time you make a mistake, you won't be able to recover from it. Every time someone criticizes you, it will just, it, 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 it won't just bounce off you. It will just, it'll dig into your soul and cause you to just lose sleep and, and be overwhelmed by it. Every time life gets hard, You'll be racked with worry about whether or not you're being punished for something you've done and and how you can come out from underneath the thing you're going through. There will be this gnawing sense that God is there and that things aren't right between the two of you and and it will eat you alive. You'll never know the happiness. Psalm 128 promises because it's the wrong kind of fear compelling you to run away from God. And here's the problem. If you're running away from the Lord, C.S. Lewis defines sin as that, as the human project of finding happiness apart from God, of trying to find happiness away from God. I've got to get away from him to find the happy life that I need. Lewis said, no, that's the very definition of sin, and it creates a very big problem. And the problem is no such thing exists. So Richard Dawkins, who is a voice of kind of the new atheist, has described the God of the Bible like this. Just listen to this in Marvel. Hear his words. He is the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, megalomaniacal, capriciously malevolent bully. Yikes. You think maybe he's got a problem with the God he says doesn't exist? That's a lot of emotion. I mean, it's really something. Now, he doesn't know his Bible very well. Because you can't read the scriptures and come to the conclusion, to that conclusion about the God that is revealed there. But it's not far off. It may be a little exaggerated for the sale of for the sake of book sales or whatever, but it's not far off from what a lot of people think. But it is God wrongly perceived. But if you think of him that way, then it makes sense. 
that you would keep running away from him, thinking your happiness is found in getting as far away from him as you possibly can, not running toward him. Just know, please know that any time you do, any time you're trying to run away from the Lord to find the happiness you think you need, you're running away from the happiness that he offers. See, Moses doesn't want you to fear God like that. Don't fear the Lord in the wrong way so that you can fear him in the right way. And the right kind of fear comes from knowing God. And that's not mushy sentimentality because knowing him is knowing that he's a consuming fire, that he, he is clouds and thunder and smoke and all of those kinds of things. He's not safe, but ultimately we come to know that he's good. Tim Keller describes the genuine uh, presence of God in really helpful terms. He says it is, it's, he describes it as a violently traumatic and lethal yet compelling and attractive experience at the same time. Or as Augustine described, it's the union of love and dread. And so when you put those two things together, when, when you have an experience of something that is, is traumatic and lethal and yet compelling and attractive, the result is awe, wonder, deep respect. And this is a fear that can so overpower you that it makes you not afraid of anything else but him. Because he has now become the weightiest reality of your life. He is the great beauty, which is what Moses wanted for the people, that God would be the great beauty, the great reality of their life, that he would be the center around which everything else moved, that his power would be seen to be greater than your weakness, that his word would become more defining than your feelings, that his grace would be and is indeed greater than your sins. That's what the Bible means by the fear of the Lord, that he is the great reality of your life. And that you always start with him, that he's the very first thing, that he's the most important thing. He's the first thing. It's God and then whatever comes next. And so Tim Keller again says this. He says, the question, and this is really, really helpful. He says, the question is not, how can I use God to live the life I want to live? No, the question ought to be, how is the life I'm living right now getting me to God? And how must I change it? Because getting to God is the most important thing. Here's what he says. He says, the fear of the Lord is not beginning with something else and then asking, how do I use God to get there? It's beginning with God. Do this experiment. Go back to Psalm 128 and just put your thumb over verse 1 and verse 4. You can do this this afternoon. If you take out verse 1 and verse 4 and you read all the rest of the stuff, you have the American dream. You have, you have, you have the, 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 the stuff that most people believe they need to live a happy life without all of the messiness of mentioning God or the fear of the Lord. Now the question is, is that enough? Most people in our culture would say, absolutely, that's what I want. Give me that. Please get on to the next point. Let's stop talking about this. The problem is, if you take out verse 1 and you take out verse 4, you have to take out the rest of it with it. There is no verses 2 and 3 and 5 and 6 without verses 1 and 4. You lose those verses, you lose the rest of the psalm. And so the wrong fear of the Lord will make you cower and hide. The right fear of the Lord will make you run to him and make him your everything. And that's where a happy life starts. Second. The second thing is, is we see not only where a happy life starts, it starts with the fear of the Lord, with, with God being the very center reality of your whole life. But secondly, we're told what a happy life looks like. And here, this idea gets to be expanded in verses 2 and 3. And four, so look here, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, he goes on to write, and it shall be well with you, and your wife 
will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So this psalm offers us a competing and compelling vision of the happy life, something different than what you will see in the advertisements and sitcoms on television. And so let me make just a number of points here. The first is that it's a life of obedience. Look at verse 1 again. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. The very next phrase, which describes what the fear of the Lord is. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. I mean, listen to Exodus 20 one more time. It says, do not fear, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And so the right fear of God is the power to not sin. It is the power to obey and to find the life that we were made for. A life of obedience to God is a happy life because we were made for him. And there's no happiness apart from him. Sin is not the releasing of the chains. Sin is the destroyer of happiness because it disrupts our relationship with God, which is the fountain of everything good in our lives. Sin only brings pain. Um, I really hesitated to be, to, I don't want to be very specific here because I don't want to cause any controversy that I don't need to, but my, my, Ashley and I were talking this week about this idea of we were very committed in our parenting of our children. We raised four kids, and uh, we were pretty proactive parents, but we were, we were very, very concerned in the disciplining of our children that they learned a very important lesson, and that lesson is that they learned that the lesson that disobedience brings pain. And the reality of parental discipline is meant to teach the child that lesson, that disobedience leads to unhappiness because it brings pain. Now, physical, not necessarily physical pain, emotional pain, whatever it might be, but the discipline of, of a child by parents is meant to teach that lesson because it's a lesson we all need to learn, that obedience is the only way to happiness. Obedience is the only way to blessing. Sin is the pursuit of happiness apart from God. Obedience is the pursuit of happiness in God. And so it's a life of obedience. But secondly, if you expand this out a little bit, we read this in our community Bible reading this past week. What is, what is a happy life? What is a blessed life? We have to make sense of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 20. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So happiness is found not in having, but in giving, according to that verse, uh, in other words, this debunks the whole idea of the prosperity gospel, if you run in those circles. It really, it really negates just about everything you read on social media with the hashtag, hashtag blessed, which I think we ought to just outlaw, if I can get an amen. We've talked about that before. We don't need to go over that again. Somebody, I have a little thing in my office, hashtag blessed, because somebody got such a kick out of that the last time I said it, because it's just because we mean something other than what the Bible, yeah, anyway, I'm getting on a soapbox. Here we go. See, the Corona commercial, the Corona commercial is not the happy life. The Corona commercial is not the happy life. A life of sacrificial giving is. So parents, you know this. The kids won't believe you, but Christmas is so much more fun for parents than it is for kids. Because the true joy, the true joy is in the presence that you give and not the presence that you get. I mean, marriage... Marriage, there is no happiness in marriage apart from, no, hold on. Whoa, 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 wow. Okay, let's stop and talk about that for a minute. Wow, did you hear the crowd? Yeah, obviously hit a nerve right there. Hmm. Marriage doesn't work 
What I was going to say is, if you'll let me finish the sentence, there is no happiness in marriage if you approach it like a consumer. The whole point of marriage is to live toward another person in self-denying me for you love. And it's hard. I'm not going to be straight with you about that. But it's where you find real happiness in parenting. And I'm going to these applications because this is what the psalm is about. And it's also from last week in Psalm 127, which we didn't get to. But in parenting, it's the same thing. Parents learn to put their happiness in the happiness of their kids. They sacrifice and they give and they lose sleep and they are poor because they're doing all those things. And all parents get in return for all of that is the terrible twos and then the teenage years and then they leave you and go to college. It's truth. It's truth. And yet, parent, I mean, parenting is one-way love. And yet, overwhelmingly, people report that it is much easier for them to love their kids than it is for them to love their spouse, which apparently is true for you guys, too, since you, like, jumped on the marriage thing so quick a minute ago. Proving my point. But why is that? And I think it's because in parenting, we come to terms quickly with the fact that it's a giving, not a receiving relationship. And we just enter into the joy of it. It opens up parts of our hearts that nothing else does. It's easier to enter into that joy of giving. But in marriage, we have a different set of expectations. We expect it to be a receiving and not a giving relationship like it is with children. And so happiness in marriage, we come to believe, is on the other side of her sacrifice for me. And that's just not true. There's more happiness in giving than receiving. So we need spiritual power to be able to supernaturally live lives of giving rather than demanding receiving. But then there's a third thing as we kind of work our way through these verses. And I want you to notice here we'll actually get to the text and see that the images of the wife and the children conveyed here, it really is the idea of health and fruitfulness. You see that? Do you notice that? And this really should be the measure of blessing, especially with kids as we raise all these children running around this place. Not success or affluence. Those things don't matter so much. What does matter is that we are healthy, that there's this whole person wellness, mind, body, and soul. And so we live productive, meaningful lives in service to God and others. And we're able to have a job that we value and work hard in and to have people who love us that we love and to see generations you know, into the future and see the impact of our lives and make whatever small difference we can in the world. That's a good life. And so look at those images again. These are small, everyday things, right? This isn't, you could be a world changer kind of stuff. This is just go home and find somebody to love. A wife like a fruitful vine, it says. Children like olive shoots around the table. These are healthy, living things that are flourishing and fruit-bearing because the environment they're planted in provides all of the sunshine and the water and the nourishment they need to grow. And what is that environment? It is a community of people that fear the Lord together. But for our purposes, it is a family where the fear of the Lord is the main thing. And I'm going to say something. Because I think it's part of what's being told to us here. I'm going to say, that starts with the man. So man, I want to come after you for a minute. 
because I think the psalm addresses the men specifically. The word is everyone there. Verse 1, do you see it? Because this applies to everybody, and it applies if, you, if you're not married or if, you're, you know, if, if there's not this case for you, then there's application broadly. But I want to especially talk to the men for just one minute, men with their families. And men, let me say this to you. If you will make the fear of the Lord your main goal for you and for your family, not material prosperity, not work success or busyness, not kids' sports and the craziness that comes with that, not even the family, but your personal fear of the Lord, then it will create the environment in which your wife and your kids will flourish and bear fruit. Let me show you why that is before we move on to the last thing. We're almost done. So here the application broadens. So for the family to function correctly, because again, the application is to family here, and it was last week as well, and we didn't really get there, so we're going to do that today. For the family to function correctly, you have to have the right fear of the Lord. You have to fear him above your spouse and your children. You have to, you have, to have him be the center of your life and to center your life on him. Otherwise, if the fear of the Lord is not there, one of two things is going to happen. Either you will want them to center their lives around you, or you will want to center your life around them. And so what happens in marriage when you demand that the person you're married to makes you the center of their life? I mean, that's selfishness. And selfishness is the enemy of a happy marriage. It's your job to take care of me. It's your job to make me happy. But you see, marriage is not built on you for me demands. It's built on me for you love because the opposite is narcissism. And with a narcissist, a narcissist is believing yourself to be too important, believing yourself to be too central to your reality. You're too important. But what happens in marriage, on the other hand, if you make the other person the center of your life? We call that enmeshment, where there's too much neediness in the relationship. You're only happy when they're happy. Or when they're sad, you get sucked into it and you can't help but be sad because the personal and emotional boundaries have become too permeable. They are too important in this case. And that ruins marriage too. See, you can be too important and live selfishly. They can be too important. You'll be needy and neither selfishness nor neediness is love. Now, enter the fear of the Lord. See, if the, if the, if the other is the case, if God is the most important thing, then you will not be too important. If God is the most important thing in the marriage, then they will not be too important and you can need them less so that you can love them more. Do you see how that works? The fear of the Lord's got to be there. Well, same thing with parenting. What happens if you demand that your children center their lives around you? This happens all the time. Mary did this to Jesus. Do you remember that? Like on multiple occasions, she did this to Jesus. And he was like, no, 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 we're not having that. Because that's the right response to a parent who tries to do this to their kids. Now, you, now kids, if you try to do that, you might get slapped. But it would still be the right response. Because the parent-child relationship is damaged when the parent becomes too important, when the parent demands that the child live for them. When the parent adopts a you-for-me approach, it happens all the time. This is the mom who wants the emotional umbilical cord to remain intact, but, but to reverse the life flow from the child to the parent instead. And it produces kids who never launch, who possibly struggle in their own marriages. I see it all the time. Because they can't leave. They're not allowed to leave. They don't have permission to leave. Now, I wanted to use this illustration last week, so you're going to have to bear with me doing it this week. But Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to Ecuador, 
uh, famous missionary, martyr in Ecuador, a very, very talented, gifted man who had this call of the Lord. Elizabeth Elliot was, of course, his wife, who's become even more famous than him. But uh, there was one great obstacle when the Lord called him at Wheaton College to go to Ecuador, and it was that his mom and dad were not having it. They said, you will not have grandbabies in South America that we can't see. And they did everything they could to stand in the way of him saying yes to the missionary service he felt called to. And so he had no choice but to, but to really kind of go against their wishes. And he wrote them a letter that's become famous, and here are his words. And recall in this uh, Psalm 127 where it says the children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior, and the blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. He was meditating on that passage. He said to his parents, this is to his mom and dad, and I, just, I, I would love to get a letter like this from a kid one day. It would be so great but I probably hate it at the same time. So listen, he says, I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us of when he told the disciples that they must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they are not. And he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves which we regard as closest, he told us must become as hate in comparison with our desires to uphold his cause. Listen to this. He says, grieve not then. If your sons seem to desert you, but rejoice rather seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children. He said that they were as a heritage to the, from the Lord and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So mom and dad with the strong arm of prayer draw the bowstring back and let the arrow fly. Straight at the enemy's host. See, there's only one way to raise children that are flourishing and fruit-bearing in the kingdom. They have to leave you and follow him. We do not clutch and hold on to our children. We ready, aim, fire. But it's just as destructive when the child is too important. When the parent lives for the child, that you, you see that all the time too, right? We don't even really need to... Explain that, but you see, the fear of the Lord, see, it's the fear of the Lord that's the only thing that can keep you from living for your kids or demanding that they live for you. And so lastly, how then does this happy life come, this fruitful, faithful, um, you know, flourishing life? How do you fear God in the right way so that he's the most important thing, so that you're not selfish and narcissistic or overly fearful and needy? You need the fear of God that makes you unafraid so that you can live with humility and courage because that's what it comes, that's what it makes, that's, excuse me, that's what makes for a happy life. Now, where does that come from? And look down in verse five and just one more thing and then we're done. It says, the Lord bless you from Zion. And that's the phrase. God's blessings flow out of Mount Zion. Well, what is that? What does that mean? And Mount Zion, of course, refers to the place where Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 22, prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac before God provided a lamb as a substitute. It's the same place that David built an altar and made sacrifices to stop the plague that broke out upon the people because he sinned against the, the Lord by doing a census. And it was where, years later, the temple itself would be built in the city of Jerusalem, which would become the meeting place between God and his people. And it says that the blessing of God came from Zion because it was there that the priests stood before the Lord on behalf of the people to make atonement for sin so that God could indeed turn toward his people, not with cursing because of their sins, but instead to bless them. Now for you and me, 
All of this points forward to what is central to Christianity, the cross of Jesus Christ. So the Hebrews writer says this, he says, you, you people of faith, you have not come to Mount Sinai, you have come instead to Mount Zion. And Mount Sinai, of course, is where the law was given. It's the place of encountering the reality of God, but not knowing him personally, knowing him only as terrifying existential threat and fearing him wrongly. But Mount Zion is the place of knowing God personally, knowing that he is holy and righteous and also forgiving and loving, which is the right fear of the Lord. The cross is the place where God's justice and his mercy meet because there Jesus, we're told, was made a curse as he hung there as a substitute for sinners. But it says in Galatians 3 that he was made a curse so that the blessing might come to all those who believe in him. Jesus Christ is the fount of every blessing. And so here's the great gospel truth. God dealt with Jesus as if he were you on the cross so that now he deals with you as if you were Jesus. All his spoils are yours. He gladly shares them with you. There is no more curse. Now the blessing of God has been unleashed in Jesus Christ and is going far as the curse is found, as the song we sing at Christmas says. That's true in the objective sense, but it's also true and can be true for you internally. And so Psalm 130 says, as we've already noted a number of times, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And that's an amen moment, isn't it? But it doesn't end there. But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. See, the happy life flows from knowing that you're a sinner and that you're forgiven and accepted into God's family at the same time. Without that, nothing else matters. It's the lesson of Zion. It's the truth of the cross, the only truth that will cause you to fear God rightly. And that, knowing that you're a sinner and that you're loved, will motivate you to obedience. It will compel you to love as you've been loved. It is the reality that will keep everything in its proper place so that you won't be overly needy because there's no greater love. There's no greater love in the world than the love of Jesus Christ for his people. But you won't be selfish either because it's sheer grace. The most uh, underappreciated line and the most famous of all Christian hymns from Amazing Grace says this, and this is the experience that you have to have with the fear of the Lord. Do you remember this line? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." You gotta have that. Grace has gotta teach your heart to fear, to be amazed, to be, to be wondering at the miracle of God. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." But here's the next line. In grace, my fears relieved. Have you had that experience? If so, you are the one who's blessed. Let's pray. So, Father, as we come to your table now, we would say we believe, but there's lots of lurking unbelief in us. And so help us as we gather in these last few moments. Uh, and as we take this word and it becomes a visible word to us in this sacrament that you are so gracious to give us, remind us of that truth. Compel our hearts to the belief in it that though we are desperate, wicked sinners, you are a God who is a friend of sinners and who loves and waits to give mercy and grace to those who call upon you. And so we do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Because God is just and holy, his hand must come down in judgment upon sin. But the good news of the gospel is that his hand did come down, but not upon you. It came down upon your Savior, Jesus, on the cross. The hand of God's justice came down to strike him 
with the blow of justice so that now I can raise my hands over you if your faith is in Jesus. He turned away from his son in, in judgment so that he could turn towards you to bless you. That's this promise, to receive these words and go knowing uh, that they are true for all who, who look to, to him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. God bless.